requirement to carry and administer naloxone. So really interesting study. I know a lot of people have strong opinions about that. So uh, feel free to voice them there. Uh, thanks, guys. Um, before we get started with our presentation, I just want to check, does anybody have a case that they would like to present on the network? All right. So I'm going to share my screen. I'll actually be doing the presentation today. All right. Do I need a mute line? Okay. So uh, last week, Jen kind of astutely pointed out that we haven't done a de-escalation didactic here on CIT Echo for quite some time. Uh, so that's what I'm going to be talking about today. I'm going to be talking about how to take the active listening skills, which are the really basic skills that we all learn in law enforcement and different, uh, different jobs that require us to communicate with folks, and apply them to even the most serious situations that we can come across. I'll show how the basic active listening skills uh, can be used all the way up to like hostage situations. Uh, the FBI uses them in their negotiations. Pretty much every law enforcement agency in the world uses these uh, tools to better communicate with folks in crisis uh, and kind of just provide a little refresher on, on what those are. So I have some objectives today. First, we're gonna become familiar with, uh, and this is really kind of a review, especially for the APD officers, of the seven different active listening skills we teach here at APD. Uh, they're evidence-based. A lot of other folks teach these. Uh, everything, everybody from car salesmen to customer service representatives to uh, hostage negotiators all use these same things because they work, right? That's why people use them. People pay a lot of money to send their folks to this kind of training again uh, because they're relatively easy to use and, and they work. Uh, and then we're gonna discuss verbal de-escalation as it pertains to communicating with people in crisis. Uh, and kind of the last thing we're gonna talk about are some common barriers that you might experience when you're talking to people who are in crisis and maybe some tips on how to overcome those barriers if they should appear. I do have a few videos uh, uh, in this PowerPoint. We're gonna try our best to get those to work, but it's, uh, it's an experiment, so we'll see how it goes. So active listening, uh, many people have heard of these. Uh, I am willing to bet that most everybody on this network has heard or, or been taught uh, at the skill of active listening or these active listening skills. When you first learn about these, the first thing I thought was, well, they're just naming how to have an adult conversation. <laughs> and uh, that's really what we're doing, right? We're just breaking down how to communicate as an adult and you know, trying to make it into these acronyms that people can remember and some easily digestible uh, uh, learning material. And that's kind of what active listening is. If, even if you had never heard or have never been taught the active listening skills, I can pretty much guarantee that you do some of these just when you're having a, a conversation. So it's a technique of communication used to let the speaker know that you're listening and comprehending what they're saying. You're proving to them through your actions and your words that you are listening. Uh, and that's really, really important when you're trying to de-escalate somebody. Uh, folks often ask me when I do this presentation or do similar presentations to a number of different places, what kind of cops are the best at de-escalating people? And I think for me, the cops that I know that they're, they're the best at this have two things in common. One is that they're kind of naturally even keeled emotionally, right? They don't get too excited too quickly. And the other is all the cops I know that are really good at this are good listeners or can pretend to be really good listeners. <laughs> uh, and so when people think that you're actually listening to them, that's when you can start to affect change in their behavior. It's really, really difficult uh, to gain some compliance or to manipulate someone's behavior if they're at a very high emotionality. Uh, if you think about the last time your significant other was really, really angry with you, uh, and maybe you tried to ask them for a favor at that time, and how willing would they be to do you a favor if they're really pissed? Uh, and it's just human nature. Um, so the goal of listening is, again, to 
we are, the ultimate goal for law enforcement is to get somebody to comply with our orders or, or what we're asking them to do. And that could be as, something as simple as leaving a restaurant or something as complex as releasing a hostage, right? And it's the same skills that accomplish both. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, these techniques uh, have proven to build rapport. They've proven through a lot of clinical research to work, to help de-escalate folks, to help get better results when you're, when you're dealing with folks. And again, they're used in numerous business applications and law enforcement throughout the world. Uh, they're taught over and over again. So I'm gonna try to get this video to work. We'll see if it does. You guys let us know if you can hear this okay. Listen to what somebody has to say without interjecting, not trying to rush them, you're not trying to cut them off. Active listening is not talking about myself. Active listening is not fixing their problem. Don't be judgmental. Don't make uh, light of, uh, of their problems. Not waiting to talk. You're not waiting for them to stop. Active listening, it's the ability to listen to what somebody has to say, understanding what they're saying and letting them know you care about what they have to say. When you see somebody in distress, hear everything that they have to say. Emotionally labeling, uh, paraphrasing, that way they know that you are actually acknowledging their emotions and what their crisis is about is very important. That is active listening. You don't have to be an expert to help somebody in crisis. That you don't have to be an expert to listen. Just check in with somebody today and see how they are. So that was the New York Police Department's crisis negotiation team uh, on talking about their take on active listening. And those are the folks that negotiate with hostage takers, with bank robbers, with terrorists, and, and all the way down to folks who are maybe contemplating suicide or whatever the case is. And one of the things I took away with that is the last couple of things they said, right? You don't need to be an expert uh, to have an effect. And that's really true. Um, even these simple skills, which most everybody can learn, can have a drastic effect on pretty much any communication that you have. But they work particularly well when somebody's at a very high emotionality, or maybe they're in a mental health or behavioral health crisis, or even if they're uh, under the influence of some substances, uh, and it's difficult to communicate with them, these can be your best friend. Um, so these are the seven that we teach here at APD. And if you notice on that left-hand side, I've highlighted in red, uh, uh, a nifty acronym for remembering these, and that's MORPI. MORPI makes intuitive sense to me. Uh, there's never been a time in my life where I've wanted less pie. Uh, so it's just one way to remember that, these, these different acronyms. I've also heard of Rome pie as one way to remember these, uh, but that, again, that's not as intuitive to me. So we'll just do a quick recap about what these mean, how I learned them, how I teach them, uh, and then we'll really start to plug these into some dynamic situations, uh, watch a, a video of a FBI hostage negotiator using these in a real scenario, a uh, real high stakes scenario, and then we'll talk about some barriers and, and some other stuff like that. So minimal encouragers are the auditory or physical behaviors that let people know you're listening. The uh-huhs, the okays, the head bobs, um, whatever you do, those little sounds to let people know that you're listening or those little actions to let people know you're listening. Um, for those of you who are head bobbers, uh, do you guys still bob your head when you're on the phone with somebody? Mm -hmm. I bet you do. I bet you do. And I know that because we did this training for our dispatchers. And we went up to the telecommunications center, and there's like 60 people in there on headsets, all head bobbing away <laughs> as they talk to folks on the phone. That's because they're so used to doing it, of course, uh, in a face-to-face -face conversation that they just do it on the phone. Uh, and these are really simple. Most of us do these anyway. Um, and they really let people know that you're listening. And I encourage you guys to use these. Um, and maybe even to a point where if, if you don't use these a lot, you might have to exaggerate the fact that you're using them because they do let people know you're listening. 
I will say that whatever your minimal encourager is, whatever you do or say to let people know you're listening, it's almost impossible to change at this point in your life. And it could, depending on what you say, put you in a sticky situation. And I'll give you a, full, a few examples of that. A lot of times when we do our first set of scenarios with the police cadets, that's when they learn what their minimal encourager is. Uh, because we have trained actors that work with us and the actor will say something like I'm gonna jump off this building and the police cadet will say okay okay and then the actor of course be like that, is that okay and the and the cadets are like oh dear god I didn't mean that that was okay you know I'm just letting you know I'm listening uh, and so if you say okay it's it could get you in a situation but again you're not going to be able to change what it is just be prepared to explain it for me, a personal situation, sometimes when I'm listening to folks, I'll say, I understand, I understand, just to let them know I'm listening. And then one time when I was a uniformed police officer, I got dispatched to a screaming woman call. And when I got there, it was a woman who had gone into labor. So I found myself how, having to help deliver a baby. And at some point, I said, I understand. Uh, and she looked at me like, no, the F you do not understand. And she was exactly right. Uh, she called me out on it and I had to explain that I, I didn't mean to imply I understand what she's going through. I'm just letting her know that I'm listening to her. So minimal encourager is a very powerful technique. Be prepared to explain it if yours is something that you find yourself in a situation that, that's a little awkward. And I have a video about minimal encouragers that I thought was pretty funny. Hey Murph. <laughs> hey Ronathan. I heard you're having trouble with your computer. Yeah, thanks for coming down. Okay, so what's uh, what seems to be the problem? Uh, so every time I try to get online, uh -huh. it's asking me for an admin okay. password, sure. but it shouldn't need a password to get onto the internet. Sure. And I should already yeah. have admin privileges on this computer. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Did you get all that? Yeah, yeah, totally. So you need admin privileges? No, no, no. Yeah. I already have yeah. admin privileges. Oh, okay. I just Great. need to get on the internet. And okay, they, yeah. I shouldn't need admin privileges. Yeah, 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 I got it. I feel like you're not actually uh -huh, listening uh -huh. to me. Yeah, yeah, sure. Are you yeah, actually okay. not listening to yeah, me, no, or are you saying that you okay, get sure. that it seems yeah, that totally. way? Yeah, totally, yeah. That's it. That makes sense. Okay, you need to stop sure. Okay, doing what? You need to stop checking in okay, with me so right. much saying okay. yeah. You need to stop yeah. saying yeah. What do you mean? It seems like you're not listening, oh, got and then you're it. just focusing got on saying yeah, yeah no, that got makes it, sense. and everything. Yeah. Like, you took yeah, some okay. kind of active oh, listening class, but you're not actually paying attention. Totally, Yeah, no, I don't think so. Then why did you disagree with me a million times while I said it? Mm-hmm, Mm. Okay, yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'm just showing you that I'm listening to you. So you have a problem with your dog, is what I'm hearing? No, what you're yeah. clearly not listening to me. Just shut up. Aaron, shut sure. up. Okay. Shut up. Sure. Shut up. Sure. Shut up. Yeah. Shut up. Okay. Shut up. Okay, sure. Shut up! Okay. Don't talk! Don't talk for a second. Sure. Sure, totally. Oh, oh got so, you. totally, totally. Okay, okay. If you're actually listening to me, why don't you tell me what I just said? Sure. Uh, you said that when you try to get online, it keeps asking you for an admin password, which doesn't make any sense because you don't need that to get online, and you should be listed as an admin on this computer anyway. You asked if I was listening. I verified that you had admin privileges. Then you spend the next two minutes scrutinizing the way that I listen to you and my concern for your pets. Then you asked me to recap the conversation, which is where we are right now. So you're gonna fix my computer? Sure, totally, Fuck totally, you, yeah. So that's obviously taking the minimal encouragers way too far, uh, and you probably get the same kind of reaction from your coworkers if you try to do that, uh, but definitely incorporate them into your listening. Uh, next one we're gonna talk about. Do you have a question? Yeah, I think something to add too is just like going back to the emotional labeling, just saying that sounds hard. I imagine that's difficult, you know, and then rather than just saying, I understand if they're in distress, and, you just affirm what they're feeling, that can go a long way, I think, to build rapport. Totally agree. Yeah, uh, we'll get to emotional labeling, but I, I, I honestly think it's one of our most powerful communication tools, so I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Um, Open-ended questions is what we're going to talk about next. It's just a question that requires more than a few-word response, right? More than a yes or no, or their date of birth, or whatever the case is. Now, in law enforcement, in the medical field, there, there's gonna be times where you have to ask closed-ended questions, right? What's your name, what's your date of birth? Why aren't you wearing pants? Whatever the question is, 
that is totally fine to ask closed-ended questions. But when you really want to build rapport, when you really want to start a conversation and try to get an effect from somebody, uh, open-ended questions really provide a great tool to do that. And they don't have to be complicated. The question I asked 99% of the time when I showed up someplace as a uniformed police officer was, what's going on? And sometimes it was really apparent what was going on, right? There's like a naked person in the pool. But asking that open-ended question gets you a lot of information and you're not leading the conversation one way or another and it just allows people to talk. And that's really the name of the game when you're being an active listener is to keep the other person talking. If they're talking, they're less likely to be doing stuff like being violent, uh, whether it's to you or to themselves or whatever the case is, they're less likely to be disruptive. Um, so the more, the more talking that you can get them to do, the better off it goes, pretty much regardless of what the situation is. Reflecting mirroring. This one uh, is one of the few ones that we change a little bit when we teach police officers this, as opposed to if it's being taught to civilians. And that's the uh, mirroring part of it. So for the mirroring, if let's say you wanted someone to sit down, you would sit down. If you wanted someone to stop pacing back and forth, you would stop pacing back and forth. If you wanted someone to stop shouting, you would stop shouting. Uh, and it works really well. Uh, the issue with law enforcement is that we are taught to stand a very certain way for our safety, right? We all stand the same way, that bladed stance with our gun side away from the subject in case there's a fight for the gun. And it's so ingrained into you in the police academy that for like the first 10 years of my career, I would stand like that off duty and people would think that's oh, very strange. Uh, so we can't really do the mirroring in the same physical way that most folks do, but you can mirror the cadence of the conversation. I've seen really good hostage negotiators use, if someone, if the person they're talking to is really, really excited and talking quickly, they will purposely slow down the cadence of their voice to get the other person to match it. And when they're not talking so fast, they kind of start to calm down uh, just as a natural effect. Um, the reflecting is, and you'll hear more about it from, from a guy named Chris Boss, who I have a video of, and he, he used to be the top negotiator for the FBI. But he calls it a magic trick, a Jedi mind trick, because it's so easy and it's so effective. And all you do is you repeat the last few words of whatever they said, and you make your voice an inflection like it's a question. And so if I were to do it to myself, I'd be like, so you're saying it's like a question, right? And that's all you have to do, and it just has this wonderful effect that people will keep talking and pretty much not even know that you're doing it. And I've seen this work at the highest levels. Again, you guys will see it work when Chris Voss is talking to a guy a bank robber who's now stuck in a bank, the Chase Manhattan Bank in New York City, and they're trying to negotiate hostage release. And Chris uses this because he gets caught off guard by a question, so he just uses the reflecting, and it just triggers this whole stream of consciousness from this bad guy. It ends up implicating a lot of other folks, and they get a lot of good information from it. I use this also when I'm running out of things to say, or I don't know quite yet what I want to say. I'll just make whatever they just last said a question. And again, it just keeps people talking. It, it's actually really cool to see. Emotional labeling. You verbalize the emotion you're seeing, right? Human beings innately want to, we want us, we want somebody to say what you're feeling is okay, right? All human beings really want and need that. And the best way we can do that is just by verbalizing the emotion we're seeing. Hey, you seem really frustrated. Hey, you seem really angry. Uh, and you're pretty much just letting them know, hey, what you're feeling, I see it, I recognize it, it's okay to feel that way. It's a really, really powerful communication tool. And if you haven't used it much, it can seem a little awkward at first, right? <clears throat> oh, you seem sad. <laughs> it seems a little uh, doctory or psychiatry-like. Um, but again, it's such a powerful thing. And I'll give you an example of how powerful it is as an example from my life. I'm not sure if anyone specifically here in New Mexico has ever had the unfortunate circumstance of calling Comcast customer service. <laughs> uh, but that was my life like a year ago, right? My cable goes out. We call to have it fixed. They send its technician. He fixes it, goes out again. We call, comes back. 
fixes it, goes out again. And so I call Comcast customer service and I'm angry, right? So a woman gets on the line, she says, how may I be of service to you? And for the next 90 seconds, uh, I'm just, I'm on a tirade. I'm telling her, you can't treat people like this. I pay my bill every month. I'm a customer, I'm changing services. I want my bill prorated and on and on and on and on, right? And at the end of that 90 seconds, she says, you seem frustrated. And I went, yeah, you know what? I am, wait a minute, <laughs> right? So I knew exactly what she was doing. I teach what she's doing for a living and it still worked. All she had to say was, you, you seem frustrated and I felt like she got it. And I was just immediately less angry and that's all she had to do. So I encourage you guys, if you guys don't use emotional labeling, to use it, it's powerful. Even if you get it wrong, you're gonna get good information. Um, I, I use this example when I teach. Guys, men, almost never say that we are sad, right? We always say we're pissed or angry or upset. And so if you say to a guy, hey, you seem sad, and they say, no, I'm not sad, I'm pissed. Okay, well, tell me why, right? You got it wrong. You, he gave you the correct information, you followed up with an open-ended question. This almost never goes wrong by using this technique. The only times I've seen it go wrong is like if you're purposely being sarcastic about it, you know, you seem real sad. And then you're probably not gonna have the desired effect. <laughs> and you should probably look for a new line of work. Paraphrasing, it's just their story, your words. You take their story, you put it in your own words, and you say it back to them, proving to them that you've been listening and understanding what they're saying. Um, that's it's in its simplest forms. All you have to do, it'll work great every time. Uh, the couple other ways that I was taught to use this is, have you guys ever been having a conversation with somebody and then you start thinking about something else, the kids or the groceries or bills or whatever, and then there's that weird, awkward pause in the conversation and you just know they asked you a question and you're like, dear God, I have not been listening to this person, right? So we were taught if you somehow zone out or didn't catch what they're saying, you can use paraphrasing. You just paraphrase the last thing you remember them saying. Like, so you were saying something about you had four pet turtles and a giant rat kidnapped them. And they're going to be like, yeah, but I also said that the rat is teaching him karate and I'm concerned about it. And I want you guys to do something about it. Right? They'll catch you back up on what you missed and may not have even realized that you weren't listening for part of that. And then the third way uh, was actually Dr. Rosenbaum, who's usually here, taught us that paraphrasing is a great way to professionally interrupt somebody. Um, some of us feel awkward when we're interrupting folks, especially maybe they're elderly or they have a serious mental illness, uh, and we just feel bad for interrupting them, but we have to, otherwise we're going to be there for hours. And so he said, you can interrupt folks with a paraphrase and just say, hey, I'm so sorry I have to interrupt you. I just want to make sure I have your story straight, right? You said this, 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 and this. And while I have your attention, I just want to let you know that I only have five more minutes to spend here. So let's get down to what we have to. And when he said that, I was like, wow, that's so cool, right? So now I use it all the time to interrupt folks. And it's just, it's a more professional, it's an it's a easier way to interrupt people. Uh, just give them a quick paraphrase. And then if you need to put in some directions about what needs to happen, just go ahead and do that. High messages conveys concern and humanizes you at the same time. I think one of the first barriers to communication that cops and even physicians are going to run into is the person we're talking to probably doesn't see you as a human being, right? We're a uniform, we're a lab coat, we're the, an agent of the hospital or of the, of the government or whatever. And what, and that's, that's counterintuitive, that's counterproductive to communication. Because if you're not a real person, you're easier to mistreat, you're easier to ignore. Uh, and so iMessages can, can help break that barrier and humanize yourself to somebody else. And from law enforcement, it sounds something like, you know, you're, it's making you really nervous while you have that knife up to your neck. Would you mind lowering it to your side while we talk, right? I'm a human being, I feel anxious, can you please do this? I'd really like to keep listening to you, but you're screaming in my face and it's hard to hear. Would you mind lowering your voice? I'm a human being. I don't like being screamed at. Can you do this instead? And again, it helps humanize yourself. It helps break that initial barrier of you not seeming like a person. I think back to like the first time I 
realized that my third grade teacher was a human being, right? Because that's not how we see them. I'm like, what do you mean she went on a date? She's my teacher. <laughs> so it's just, it's very human to not see them as human beings, not see you guys as human beings. And iMessages can kind of help ease into that. Uh, they're a little tricky to use because you have to build a little bit of rapport first, right? If you just walk up to somebody and say, hey, you're making me nervous, they're gonna be like, who are you? And why is this all of a sudden about you? So you have to build some rapport first and then try to use an iMessages. Um, there are some law enforcement folks that I teach this to that will later come to me and say, hey, Ben, I tried that iMessage thing, it didn't work. I'm like, okay, well, what did you say? And they said, I, told them to sit down and shut up. And I'm like, well, it's not exactly how I taught you. Uh, so that's not gonna work. But if you can find ways to humanize yourself to them and then give them a direction, uh, iMessages can have a pretty profound effect on the end result. Effective pauses. All it is is the absence of talking. It seems really easy to do. For those of us in a problem-solving profession, like the medical field, like firemen, like police officers, it's extraordinarily hard for us to stop talking because we want to solve the problem. We want to get as much information as quickly as we can, uh, and we do that by just asking a bunch of questions. Um, we often cite this, it's older now, it's an older study conducted here in the U.S. about how many seconds it takes your doctor to interrupt you when you go into a visit. Does anyone on the network want to guess the average number of seconds it takes your doctor to interrupt you. You guys can say it or just type it in chat. What do you guys think? 10 seconds. Any other guesses? Four seconds. Four seconds. What do you guys think? One second. You need a new doctor, sir. <laughs> Depends on the, the specialty, too, though. Which specialty interrupts more? I'd love to hear this. Uh, I have no idea. Psychiatrist? I wouldn't say so. Maybe primary care provider. Huh. Okay. I've got a couple that um, same 15 seconds, three seconds, 15 seconds. So you guys are all pretty close. The average nationwide was eight seconds this time of the survey. I believe that was conducted in 2012, right? So you go in, you say, hey, doc, I've had this cough. You've had this cough. And when did it start? What is it like? What, is, what color is your phlegm, right? They start interrupting you. And you've had this whole big long story to tell them, and now they're interrupting you. And I don't know about you guys, but for me, it makes me feel like I'm just wasting their time, right? Uh, they just want to get me in and out as quickly as possible. And that's kind of the effect that folks are going to have if you guys are talking when you should be listening. Uh, and there's a video uh, of me interacting with a young man in our community living with autism spectrum disorder. And a lot of the APD folks have seen it. And at one point, this young man is trying to explain to me that he has a heartache. And I keep interrupting him and saying, don't worry, we're gonna start an ambulance. Uh, we're gonna get some, some experts here. We're gonna get you fixed up. And he keeps trying to talk and I keep interrupting him. And then finally, he's like, dude, I'm trying to tell you that I broke up with my girlfriend and I have this heartache. And I'm like, oh, right? And I was too busy trying to solve this young man's problems when I should have just been listening to what he was saying. And I think we all fall into that trap, especially those of us in problem-solving professions. Sometimes we just need to stop talking and just listen. Right? It, it works particularly well if you have to ask a very profound question. All of us here on the network have had to and probably will have to, again, ask somebody if they're thinking about ending their life by suicide. So when you ask that, stop talking. Um, what I see from younger officers is it, it's an uncomfortable question to ask. So they said, hey, are you thinking of killing yourself? Because if you are, we can do this, we can do that, I can get you to the hospital, blah, 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 blah. And they just never give that person the, the opportunity to, to answer that. And sometimes we really just need uh, to stop talking. You can also use this tactically, right? You can use this to help shape the conversation. If you want them to talk, if you want the conversation to continue, pretty much all you have to do is to stop talking. And somebody, when it gets too awkward, will say something. 
And uh, Sergeant Tinney, he used to be a part of this unit, used to demonstrate this in class pretty effectively, where he would just stop talking in front of 40 students. And inevitably, 10 seconds or so later, one of the kids or one of the students would make a joke or say something about how uncomfortable it was, proving that you can shape the conversation by your uh, just not talking when we shouldn't be. So effective pauses seem easy. They're going to be difficult, I promise you. So how do we use these in really high stress situations? Um, some basics when you are gonna be using these for de-escalating folks. Uh, there's a lot of different studies on, on people's cognition levels uh, and their ability to problem solve when they're under a lot of stress and when they're very emotional. And to summarize almost all the studies I read, people are smarter when they're less emotional. And not only do we wanna be smarter when we're talking to folks, we want the folks we're talking to to be smarter, right? If you're trying to negotiate with a hostage taker, we want that hostage taker making good decisions that we are offering. We don't want them doing something rash. We don't want them doing something uh, emotional, right? We want them to think about the most logical way. And you can do that by lowering that emotion, the whole point of what we're talking about today. Um, small stakes practice equals high stakes success. Uh, when I was putting this presentation together, I ran into a couple of individuals. One is Chris Voss, who you'll hear from later. He obviously had a very, very high stress job. He was the primary negotiator for Americans kidnapped in other countries. He had to negotiate uh, with uh, foreign kidnappers to get them to release American citizens. So his stakes, literally life or death was at stake. Uh, the other person I kind of ran into uh, was a guy named Daniel Negranu. I don't know if you guys know, he is one of the best poker players in the world. He's won several of the highest poker playing championships, and he often plays for millions and millions of dollars. Again, very high stakes. And it was interesting because they both said the same thing. You practice small and you get the results big. Um, it, there's this misconception that when it comes down to game time, you're going to you're going to rise to the occasion, right? You're going to be that much better and that much smarter and that much quicker when the stress is on. And it just doesn't work like that. What happens is when we get really stressed and really emotional, we regress to what we have learned uh, to almost unconscious uh, application, right? We fall back to what we know in and out. So practicing these skills on your family, on your friends, on your coworkers, in the small stakes, you'll just have a better result when it really comes to crunch time. Emotional labeling triggers something called a stream of consciousness where people are talking as fast as they're thinking and whatever comes into their head, they're saying. That's extremely valuable for both of our kind of work, right? Both the, um, the medical side and the law enforcement side. People just saying what they're uh, thinking is very important. So use those emotional labels to trigger that. It helps us out. When somebody corrects you or is a jerk or says something nasty, the automatic, the default is for us to get angry and snap back and to think we're not making progress. When in fact, if someone's correcting you or insulting you, that's dialogue. Right? I'll take that. Uh, I know, personally speaking, I would rather have somebody yelling and cussing me out than not saying anything at all if there's serious stakes at play. I mean, I would just, right, that at least we're getting some amount of communication in that. So don't get offended. Don't snap back, even though it can come very naturally uh, when somebody is, is a jerk. Just take that as a win because it is. They're still talking to you. Listening in both of our line of work could be the matter of life or death whether someone takes their own life because they didn't feel hurt or takes somebody else's life because we didn't do a good enough job. Sometimes in our career, it's that important where you have to listen. Listening is very, very difficult, right? Most of what we consider listening as adults is just waiting for our turn to talk. <laughs> and this listening to respond, not listening to understand. And so be the opposite of that, right? because it could mean the difference between saving somebody's life and not. People usually get about seven seconds to make a first impression. Make sure 
you make the best use that you can of that first seven seconds. Whatever your script is, whatever information you need to, to use, whatever you know, part of yourself you need to, to get out there, that first impression is very powerful. Not to say that you can't recover from a bad first impression, you absolutely can, um, but that, those are some pretty important first seven seconds. So taking the tools individually and using them, Minimal encouragers, if you're talking to folks on the phone, like in a crisis negotiations scenario, or you're not face-to-face because -face you're talking through a door, or whatever the case is, you got to switch to your auditory minimal encouragers because they're not going to see you head bobbing. They're not going to see you lean in like you're paying attention. Uh, so just keep that in mind. Uh, and again, if you're not face-to-face, -face, that makes them pretty invaluable. Open-ended questions, very valuable for obtaining a lot of good information. Um, a good open-ended question, again, will get you a lot of information. Just by me saying what's going on, I mean, people would tell me the craziest stuff. Stuff that sometimes didn't have anything to do with why I was there, uh, but more information is almost never a bad thing. And it keeps people talking. Again, that's the whole name of the game when you're trying to de-escalate folks, keep them talking. Reflecting mirroring. It's a simple technique that can yield a large amount of information. Again, it's like magic. Um, and I've seen folks do this, this second bullet. Voice inflection can really be a tool to shape someone's emotional state. Whether you're slowing your voice down or you're speeding your voice up or you're changing to you know, your radio DJ voice uh, so it's more calming, um, that really affects people subconsciously. And they sort of can't help but to start mirroring that. And so you can, you can shape somebody's emotions just by using your inflection and your cadence and all that stuff when you're talking to folks. Uh, here is another video. This is what I was talking about. This is Chris Voss. Guys, we're talking about mirrors today. Mirrors, simple, magic, too easy. Jedi mind trick. The last one to three words are the important one to three words. Listen to these examples to see how crazy it is that this stuff works. This is Chris again. How are you? Hey, listen, I, I got a, a couple of questions I need to ask you. We've, uh, we've got a van out here, a blue and gray van. Um, we've been able to get a handle on the owners of all the vehicles out here, except this one in particular. Do you know anything about it? Well, other vehicles not out there because you guys chased my driver away. We chased your driver away? Well, when he seen the police, he cut. This mirror tool, one of the negotiation techniques, you know, from the FBI eight, you know, there are eight specific techniques that we used in hostage negotiation. Um, the mirror tool is one of those ways to innocuously get them to either repeat it or expand on it. Get them to either repeat it or expand on it? Right. Is that what you, is that what you just said? Right. Did I, did I just do it? It, 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 you know what? You did. It was perfect. Okay. See, and I didn't even notice it. I was just telling you to use it. <laughs> That's pretty cool. I don't know if you felt awkward when you did that because you did it intentionally, but I had no idea that you did it until you told me you did it. Wow. It was awkward. It was definitely awkward. It felt, you know, contrived. But you didn't pick it. You didn't. You didn't feel that at all. No. I mean, you okay. you blew that one by me. You blew it right by me. I hope you got the. All right. So again, it's like magic. It's really easy. He he teaches this for a living. Didn't even know a student was using it on him. In that first clip, they didn't even know there was accomplices before that bad guy just started naming him off when he used that technique. So these work all the way up to the highest, most dangerous situations, all the way to the very benign conversations. Um, again, emotional labeling is our best friend, I think, when it comes to talking to folks, when it comes to de-escalating people. It can trigger that stream of consciousness that just really helps build rapport. It can help convey some empathy to that person. Um, and empathy, it's, it's, it's such a great tool um, that I think is underused, um, particularly by law enforcement. 
especially if you're kind of the older generation of police, like like when I first started, um, it was more about being just you know a, a unfeeling police officer and going out and doing my job. But if you're talking to somebody and you can either have some real empathy for somebody or you can fake it, uh, it really helps build that rapport and helps de-escalate folks. Um, paraphrasing can help relay information to others, uh, right? If, if I, I've seen this used in the field a lot where the first officer sees somebody and he says, hey, what are you doing with that knife over there? Or you're saying you have a knife and you wanna kill yourself with it. Well, he just let everybody else know, all the other police, that this person is armed with a knife that maybe we can't see. And so you can help relay information. You have to be careful not to minimize that person's experience when you paraphrase. Um, there have been several instances where I've seen people in just a full-blown behavioral health crisis for maybe reasons that I thought weren't good or shouldn't, they shouldn't send somebody into a crisis. And we really need to take a step back from that. Um, Chances are that if you're in one of the fields that are joining us today, either law enforcement or the medical field, you have better than average coping skills just by the nature of what you do. In fact, it's something they look for when they're hiring police officers. We have to understand that not everybody has those same coping skills. And we have to understand that we don't really know what's going on with somebody's life, right? This small thing that sentiments crisis could just be the straw that broke the camel's back and they've had all kinds of stuff happen to them. So what can happen is you paraphrase, but maybe you do it a little sarcastically or you roll your eyes or whatever the case is, people are gonna pick up on that stuff. Uh, and you're gonna, you're gonna lose all that rapport and all that good communication that you've worked so hard to build by doing that. So it, it's tough to do, but make sure we're not being judgmental when it comes to that sort of thing. I statements are used to counteract non-collaborative statements by the speaker. If they just really don't want to get on board, you can make it almost seem like this was their decision not to, to get on board with whatever you're saying. Uh, it could also be used as a timeout or a reality check. I've seen a lot of good negotiators use it that way. Uh, but again, I think iMessage is the power behind them is their ability to humanize us to somebody else. Um, and again, it's just easier to be, it's, it's when you're humanizing somebody, it's less likely they're going to be violent towards you. Um, if you look across history on when cultures or a certain race of people or a certain religion of people are targeted uh, for brutality, the first thing that they do is they start dehumanizing those people. Uh, it happens when, when countries go to war, they start dehumanizing their enemy um, because it just makes it easier to do terrible stuff to them. So whether you're talking to somebody on the phone or face-to-face, -face, whatever the case is, the more human you can seem to them, the better results you're going to get, the less chance there is for violence or whatever the case is. Effective pauses. I found this tidbit of information I thought was really telling. Uh, the biggest difference between an expert crisis negotiator and a non-expert is that the experts listen much more than they speak um, because they, they've gotten good at their job. They've gotten good at doing what is, an, what is effective, and that's listening and not talking, whereas the person who's relatively new thinks that they have to talk more than they do. And I ran across this very police phrase called dynamic inactivity, mm -hmm. which just means shutting up, right? Just means not talking, <laughs> but we gotta make it sound very tactical. Um, it allows a person to continue to speak while pausing before you start to help calm the situation. It also gives you a chance to collect your thoughts to not say something you might regret. You know, when somebody says something nasty and you go to just respond off the cuff and then you get a complaint or you lose that, that, that rapport that you were building. So taking the time to pause or use this dynamic inactivity uh, really goes a long way. So verbal de-escalation. In law enforcement, we use it to accomplish a law enforcement goal. It, it has byproducts. One of them is it seems more professional, right? It seems like the police are being nicer. It seems uh, that we're being professional. It looks good on our lapel cams or body cams. Um, but from law enforcement, we are using it to accomplish a goal. And it's the most effective way that we can accomplish that goal. And so that's what we need to be using verbal de-escalation. Sometimes 
during the cadet phase, when I'm teaching the cadets, we teach them these active listening skills and we send them to their first scenario. And all they have to do is get somebody who's being disruptive out of the Denny's, right? That's their mission. So they go and they're using their de-escalation skills and now they're best friends with the actor. Uh, it's gonna be in their wedding. They're inviting them over. Uh, they're going on a date later that night and they just never accomplish what they were sent in to do. And so we have a goal. Again, it can be something as benign as removing somebody from a restaurant or talking somebody into handcuffs without using force all the way up to releasing a hostage or whatever the case is. Keep that goal in mind when we're using these things. So what is verbal de-escalation? It's an approach of communication that appears less confrontational, less authoritative with the goal of gaining compliance from the subject. Now there is a time and a place for law enforcement to be confrontational and authoritative. The trouble is, is if you start out that way, it's almost impossible to go back. It's almost impossible to go back. So start out professional, start out uh, you know, using these skills. And then if you need to transition to be more confrontational or more authoritative, if some safety issue starts presenting itself, you can, you can switch. Again, it's just really hard to go back if you start this way. And we've all seen it, right? Uh, you see you know, an officer that maybe has seen one too many Mel Gibson movies or whatever the case is, and just shows up and starts screaming at people, right? And it just doesn't work, right? Nobody likes being screamed at and you come off way too authoritative. And it's just not a great way to accomplish our goal. And we're sort of learning that now in law enforcement. When I first started, it was the ask, tell, make theory of policing. And that's the way we were taught, right? Ask them, tell them, and then make them do something. And now what the, the problem with that is sometimes people are just gonna make, wanna make, want you to make them do it. And that usually involves use of force, people get hurt. And then as a police officer, I believe that some fights are coming no matter what. So we need to be ready for that, we need to be trained for that. But if we can talk ourselves out of fights, if we can talk ourselves out of having to put our hands on people, if we can talk ourselves, we can, we can talk other folks out of being in a crisis or wanting to, um, to take their own life in suicide, then we're just that much better at what we do. And we're sort of slowly learning that this works better than the ask, tell, make theory. And these are skills that reduce the risk of violence to everybody involved, reduce the risk of the person who's communicating, the person we're communicating with, and in law enforcement, all the looky-loos that have come out to see what's going on that can get hurt if something goes wrong. So again, skills that help reduce the risk of violence across the board. So I'll put this up here and it, it kind of ties back into what I was saying before. If somebody's in the red zone, if they're very emotional, it's almost impossible to influence their behavior. It's almost impossible to get compliance. So you gotta work to get that, right? And almost 100% of the officers I've ever met are really good at this, despite maybe what the misconception is or what the media portrays. I've seen officers use these skills um, just at a very professional level and get people who were dead set on fighting or taking their own life to a place uh, of compliance. And it, it's, it's really difficult work. I have a massive amount of respect for law enforcement. I always will um, because some of these situations are the most dynamic and, and possibly violent situations that you can find yourself in and our officers are talking their way into compliance without the need for force sometimes. And it's, it's really cool to see. So beginning of the de-escalation process starts when you come across an emotional subject. Once you lower their emotionality a little bit, then and only then can you have a little bit of influence over their behavior. And that's really when we start using some of the other techniques that we have uh, and again, our goal is usually compliance with what we're asking them to do. And then maybe they need to leave someplace, they need to go to the hospital, they gotta go to jail. Whatever the case is, there's some amount of compliance that we need and the best way to get it is to lower somebody's emotionality. So some de-escalation specific techniques, use your active listening skills, they work, they're simple, they're great. Be on the lookout for hooks and triggers. Hooks are things that people like to talk about. Right? Um, I always give the same advice. If you don't know anything about the person really, a pet is a much better hook than a significant other. Uh, it's like 50-50 whether somebody likes their significant other, 
it's like 99% they like their dog. So hooks, use pets. You can also just look around the environment, right? People have sports jerseys or tattoos or whatever is in their environment that you can talk about. Look for that, talk about it. For suicidal subjects, you know, having them concentrate on whatever you identify has kept them alive to that point. Kids, pets, significant others. Triggers uh, are things that piss people off. And there's some universal ones that we should always stay away from, right? Politics, religion, anything that's really divisive in our community, uh, you probably don't want to be bringing up uh, when you're talking to folks. Um, now, you can accidentally stumble on a trigger, right? Especially if you're talking to millennial. Hello. Uh, so if you accidentally piss somebody off with a trigger, all you got to do is say you're sorry and you didn't mean to be offensive. Being really honest with you guys, as a younger officer, I don't think I said sorry enough. I don't, I don't think I said thank you enough when people did what I asked them to do. Uh, call it pride or whatever the case is. I didn't think I need to say that. Being a little older now and wiser, I realize that saying thank you and apologizing doesn't really cost us anything. And it can go a long way in getting the result that we want. So if you accidentally upset somebody when you ask them about their medications, you know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to upset you, it's just a question I asked everybody. Um, and just apologize and move on. Don't make it personal. Sometimes this can be very, very, very difficult, right? People say some really upsetting things to everybody on the network has heard it at some point, right? And our natural inclination is to say something nasty right back. Maybe that's how you communicated with your siblings for the first 40 years of your life, right? Um, but that doesn't get us anywhere, right? We have to be the professionals that we're being paid to be. And we have to realize maybe it's not that they're being jerks. Maybe they have a mental illness. Maybe they're on substances. And even if they are just being a jerk, the fastest way to get them out of, out of your life is to be a professional. Right? If you make it personal and you say something back, you're going to be with that person longer than you would have if you had just been professional. And I know it can be very difficult uh, depending on the person you're out with. Be very cognizant of what you bring to the interaction as far as bias, as far as whatever mood you're in. Um, you know, we're all human beings. We're all affected by what we see and do. And for law enforcement, right, if we respond to a gruesome suicide, <coughs> We don't just get to go home after that. We're on our way to the next call. And the next call could be a woman who lost her driver's license. And you have to be aware that you were bringing emotions from that last call to this one, and it could affect the outcome of that. Uh, and bias is something that's not talked about a whole lot in law enforcement, but I've, I've been to a lot of law enforcement trainings where they're like, officers should never have a bias. And I'm I always think like, that's ridiculous. We all have biases. Um, we do. I, my bias, I worked downtown Albuquerque on graveyard for well over a decade in uniform. My bias is having to talk to drunk people while I'm sober. It's just not a lot of fun. I got so sick of it that I started to realize I was losing my patience quicker than I should have. I wasn't giving people a fair shot when they came up to me. Right? You see a drunk person stumbling over, and right away I'm like, here we go. Maybe they're just trying to ask where they can catch a taxi, where they can pick up an Uber. Um, but I started to lose my patience sooner, and I know I developed a bias. So now I have to have that inner monologue in my head, right? A drunk person comes walking over, and you have to say, hey, Ben, give this person a chance. They haven't done anything to you. Just be professional. Listen to what they have to say. I think the only way that you can combat a bias that you have is to know you have it in the first place. So it, I think it's a little ridiculous to say officers should never have a bias. We all do. Uh, I don't think that law enforcement should have a bias and have it greatly affect the way they do their job, right? If you have a bias against a particular race of people and so you pull them over more or they get harsher penalties, go find someplace else to work, honestly. But having a bias, being aware of it and combating it, that's very human, right? Just be aware of what yours is and maybe make, make sure your partner knows what your bias is so they can be a good partner. Um, there have been plenty of times 
where some of the folks I work with, I know what gets under their skin. And when I see it, I'll just say, hey, Sarge is on the phone for you. I'll talk to this person right? and be a good partner and get them out of there. Use empathy. I'm a big proponent of that. There are some people that you are going to come across that you can have legitimate empathy for. If you've ever had to tell a parent that their child might not, is, is not coming home, is deceased, you can have real empathy for that person. Let it show. There are some people you meet in these line of works that are truly evil, evil people that have done despicable things. There's no way I expect you to conjure up real empathy, but you can fake it. Right? You can fake it to get through that interaction, to get them out of your life so you don't have to see them again, so you don't have to get a complaint or whatever the case is. Just be a professional until you can get them out of your life. We'll talk about, we'll wrap up by talking about a few of the most common barriers that I have encountered when you're using these skills. The first is highly emotional subjects. Whether they're under the influence or in a mental health crisis or whatever the case is, their coping mechanisms have been overwhelmed, they're in crisis. If you can minimize the situation, you know, um, because they're gonna maximize it. They're thinking the world is ending, this is the worst it could be, so if you can help minimize that, it's gonna make the situation a little worse. Focus on the positives, Focus on what you can do as opposed to just listing the things that you can't. Right? Can't do this, can't do that, sorry, it's SOP, sorry, I can't do that. Focus on what you can do and focus on the positives of whatever the situation is. Concentrate on those communication hooks. You find things that folks like to talk about, keep them talking about it. Right? If they got a favorite sports team in New Mexico, there's a very healthy tattoo culture, so a lot of people like talking about them. Just keep them talking about it. Their, their dog, their kids, whatever it is. Slow down your verbal cadence. What tends to happen is if somebody's really emotional, your emotions start to rise. It just happens, right? So if you can, have, if you can remember to slow yours down, it will slow theirs down. If you can remember to talk quieter, they will start to match your tone. Even if they're yelling and screaming in your face, if you can talk, you know, if it's safe to do so, talk slowly, talk calmly, they'll eventually match your cadence. If they don't, it's probably a good sign that something else is going on, right? Maybe something medically, maybe substance use, maybe severe mental illness. Humanize the involved parties. I've been harping on that this whole presentation. Uh, just everything goes better when you humanize each other. Sometimes we have to check our ego to accomplish a law enforcement goal. Uh, Detective Saavedra is, often says, it's better to be effective than right. And that's true, right? Sometimes, even though we're absolutely 100% in the right, sometimes we just need to be effective and say what we need to to get through that interaction as a professional. And it can be very difficult. Um, this is particularly difficult outside of work when you're dealing with significant others or family um, to just, you know, you, we want to say that we're right and we want to prove it to the other person. Look, I was right. And that just may not be what the situation calls for. So sometimes we do need to check our ego. Mental illness or developmental disability is something we all come across. It's going to require an abundance of patience. My number one tip is you're going to have to have more patience than with any other call. You may have to repeat yourself. You may have to sometimes physically focus people on your face, ask them over and over again to do the same thing, help them get out of a situation that they found themselves in. It just it requires a lot of patience. Use simplified language. Um, don't talk to people like children if they're not. I want you guys to use simplified language, but don't talk to, to adults like kids, even if they're acting like, like a child, because it can be very offensive. So. Simplify your language, make sure that they're commands that they understand, but don't talk to them like children. Uh, you may need to constantly refocus subjects. Uh, you guys have all been out with folks like this who, if you just let them talk, they will talk for two or three or four hours uh, about all kinds of different subjects and you need to constantly refocus them back to the here and now. For people that are paranoid or scared or fearful, first of all, just say that. You seem really, you seem really terrified. And say that, get that out in the open, use that emotional labeling, and then do whatever you can to instill a sense of safety for them. It's going to go a long way. Now, for law enforcement, I'll add a caveat that 
paranoid and scared subjects. Just like if you thought someone was after you, they might choose to arm themselves. So it's a safety concern for everybody involved if you're dealing with somebody who's very paranoid or scared. The most timid species on the planet will fight if they feel cornered. And humans are no differently. So keep that in mind, please. Don't take risks for, with folks that are very paranoid or scared. They might have weapons and they may fight if they feel cornered. But if you can instill a sense of safety, if you can reassure them you're going to be with them until this crisis dissipates or until the hospital gets there or the firemen or whatever, that's going to go a long way in getting that person to, to build some rapport with you. If somebody's in psychosis, like they're delusional, they have some, some really out there delusions or hallucinations, we don't want to buy into that and say, oh, I see the snakes too. Let me kick them out of the way or, you know, whatever the case is. Buying into them, even if it seems like a really quick way to resolve that situation, it almost is never good in the long run. Um, there was a, a, a case here at APD where a couple of young officers responded to a woman who was in psychosis, and she kept saying there were people running around on the roof of my car or running around on the roof of my house. And she called four or five times that night. So the fifth time those officers went out there, they said, we caught the person. He's going to jail. You don't need to call us anymore. And she was like, great. Can I get a police report? And they were like, well, so first problem is they lied to her, right? Now they got to either fabricate a police report or tell her the truth. The second and bigger issue is now when police officers respond and try to convince this woman to go to the hospital, she says, no, this isn't, this is real. Other officers arrested that person that was on my roof. Call those officers as they know, right? I don't need to go to the hospital, I'm perfectly sane. So you've done a disservice to all the other folks that have to deal with this by buying into their emotions or buying into, excuse me, buying into their delusions. Um, so don't do it. It's better to say, I don't see the snakes that you're seeing, but I bet that's terrifying for you, right? Validating how those delusions or those hallucinations make that person feel um, without buying into to you seeing them or you hearing them. I often use the statements, I don't hear what you're hearing. I don't see what you're seeing, but I bet that's terrifying for you. I, I would also be extraordinarily angry if, if those voices were telling me that, right? So you don't have to, you don't have to verify that they exist. You don't have to buy in. Just kind of uh, validate how that those things make that person feel. It's going to be better in the long run. And if you have mental health resources available, use them. Right? I wouldn't say New Mexico is known for its resources, uh, but there, there are some mental health resources that you can uh, tie in uh, as law enforcement uh, and otherwise. And if they're available, use them. Sure. This is Alex from you. Um, one of the things to add, like I think it's, you want to be very careful with someone who is strongly delusional because those beliefs are very fixed. Yeah. I mean, you can acknowledge like, oh, you know, I believe that you have these symptoms, but you don't want to be overly skeptical because that can make them more defensive. No, that's a great point. Yeah. Um, people believe delusions as strongly as you believe you're sitting there watching me mm -hmm. and to try to convince them they're not real or they're, or they're ridiculous. You're going to end up in an argument. You could provide irrefutable proof of what they're saying is not true, and they will find a way to make it true. Mm -hmm. So you're absolutely right. That's just never going to be a good option. Yourself. One of the biggest barriers that folks can come across is yourself. Slow down. Uh, police officers are taught this since the academy, right? Slow down. If you can delegate folks without becoming overwhelmed, have your partner do stuff. Uh, often uh, I will suggest to officers that it, if you trust your partner, turn your radio off while you talk to folks. That way it's not a distraction. It's not, it's not bothering that person. Um, so if you can delegate some responsibilities, you're going to relieve a lot of stress on yourself. This one we've talked about, don't take it personal. Don't make it personal. Sometimes it's very difficult to do. Be aware of what biases you have. Maybe your partner uh, can be aware of, of what gets under your skin. Get rid of distractions. If you, get, if you don't need the lights and sirens on, turn them off. If you don't need the radio on, turn it off. If you don't need 10 cops there, get rid of some. Uh, some of the smaller agencies in, on the network are just laughing at that because <laughs> they'll never have 10 cops anywhere. Um, but you know, APD, if you don't need 10 police there, get rid of some. 
be goal-oriented. Remember that we're trying to accomplish a law enforcement goal uh, and use that accordingly. And then keep in mind, there are a lot of stuff we can control and there are some things you can't. One of the things you absolutely can control in every situation is you, right? What you say, what your emotional state is, those are things you can control. You can't control what somebody else is gonna do. You can't really control what they're gonna say to you, uh, but you have control over what you do. And that plays a really pivotal part of that, how that interaction goes. Um, so just be aware of that stuff. I think that's all I have. Happy to answer any questions for you guys if, if you had any questions about today's presentation. I will stop sharing my screen.